Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from a cool, wintry day in West Kelowna, British Columbia. <clears throat> in today's episode, we examine the cataclysmic end to the last ice age and the multivariate global effects that followed this cosmic event. Joining us for today's episode is Dr. James Kennett, a now retired marine geologist and professor emeritus of earth science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Kennett originally earned his PhD in geology from Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand in 1965, and has been a prolific scientific researcher ever since. Dr. Kennett is considered a pioneer in developing the relatively new field of paleooceanography. He is credited with publishing over 500 peer-reviewed scientific papers and has authored or contributed to nearly two dozen books. Over the last 50 years, Dr. Kennett has contributed towards our comprehensive understanding of major paleoenvironmental and biotic changes that shaped the Cenozoic era, its stratigraphic record, and the multitude of processes involved in this development. Dr. Kennett is also a co-founder of the Comet Research Group, a scientific organization dedicated to the examination of the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis and its multitude of global impacts, as well as providing evidence that such impacts are commonplace throughout Earth's history. Dr. Kennett, it's an honor and a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show. Thank you for asking. Very good. So let's start off perhaps if you could share with the listeners how you became passionate and interested in geology in the first place and then what led you to pursue paleoceanography? Well, that's a long story. I, um, I was in New Zealand, Wellington, and I um, uh, grew up in a in a city with a museum and, and the uh, government institutions for New Zealand, the scientific institutions. And so I was in a fortunate location. I, um, my, my parents owned a farm uh, in, Nelson, in the Nelson region. And uh, so I was able to go and look at um, different uh, environmental conditions when I was very young. And I, for some reason, I became very interested in natural history when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And um, then, I start, then I started to notice rocks and fossils at the age of 11 or 12. And I uh, just simply got interested in earth science. Uh, I don't know, it just happened. And I got encouragement my, from friends and, and, and my parents and relations. And, and then subsequently I started collections, uh, uh, biological and geological collections, and um, got to know the scientists at the uh, government institutions and the museums and so forth, and they encouraged me. And I decided at the age of 12 to be a geologist. <laughs> ah. So, uh, so I, I did that. <laughs> and uh, here I am. <laughs> so, and Fantastic. Just, it's been a, been a lifelong pursuit for you then, literally. Absolutely, yes. And came to, well, I was part of the brain drain, the so-called brain drain in the 60s that came to the US because the great opportunities to do uh, global research and I, I was very lucky because I'm very privileged because the ocean drilling, the, the discovery of the oceans had really started going at that time and I decided uh, when I was at, uh, at the university in Wellington that I that virtually, virtually knew nothing about the oceans and so I um, decided I'd want to go into marine, marine geology and worked at the Oceanographic Institute in, in uh, Wellington before immigrating to the U.S. Did a postdoc at USC, University of Southern California, uh, who was studying um, paleo records of the oceans, and I got to 
uh, had the privilege of beginning this field we call paleoceanography. Uh, ancient oceanography, how the oceans have changed through time and, and the processes involved in, in, um, in producing those changes over long term, well, millions of years. So uh, virtually nothing been known about this and we, yet we had to drill in the oceans to really get those records. And uh, here I was and so I was involved in ocean drilling for many years and drilled all over the oceans and <laughs> many expeditions. Here I am. <laughs> And, and is that where you cross paths with uh, Dr. Summerhays? That's right. And in fact, when I was an ocean, the Oceanographic Institute in Wellington, it was only there. We were waiting for visas. My, my wife and I were waiting to get uh, visas to immigrate to the United States. Uh, I needed a temporary job, so the Oceanographic Institute temporarily hired me, and I ended up in the same office as Colin Summerhays for ah. a few months uh, while we were waiting to get on a ship to come to the U.S. Oh, and yes. Oh yeah, <laughs> fantastic! And then, uh, so l later in your in your scientific career, you uh, became a co-founder of the Comet Research Group. Uh, can you give us some background on on the the formation of that group and its its uh, objectives and, and such? Well, yes, uh, it's it's quite interesting, really. Uh, it's 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 a really good example of science science in action and just fluky things that happen that get in, people interested individuals interested who push a little harder in terms of trying to understand this is going back now over a little over a de decade now of course and um uh, it really started with um a student at the uh, university of michigan who was looking at artifacts um, clovis artifacts the paleomedian artifacts and he found associated with these artifacts or closely associated with uh, spherules uh, high temperature spherules and uh, just that simple uh, recognition, uh, he then reached out to a couple of people, uh, Firestone and uh, Alan West, and um, uh, you know, said, what, what could this mean? It looks like this could be an impact. Um, and so they, they took it and started to uh, analyze uh, that side and, many, and numerous other ones. And in order to do that, they brought in, they began to bring in a few key people um, to uh, run these diverse analyses so that the program grew and, uh, and we, we became convinced that we had you know, very compelling evidence that there had been a cosmic impact at, um, at the onset of the Younger Dryas, the so-called Younger Dryas rock, which I'll mention in a minute what, what that is, but which we now date at uh, 12,800 years ago. And um, so it's it's uh if, if we hadn't had that pursuit that early pursuit a small group initially the small group of scientists um it's very likely that uh our, this discovery uh, would still be waiting to be made uh even 10 years later so um because it is controversial it, it, it explains a lot of um a lot of enigmas a lot of things that just don't don't add up in terms of uh, other kinds of hypotheses and certainly collectively. So uh, as we got into this, we discovered that there was a, a strong integration between a lot of the problems. We could answer a lot of the problems uh, coherently and intelligently, we believe, um, uh, through, this, uh, through this process of a, of a major cosmic impact with Earth at 12.8 thousand years ago. So, um, 
Now, why did I get, why, did, why was I involved in this uh, with the small initial group? Um, well, the reason was that I, being a paleoceanographer, I initially, uh, years before this, had done, uh, well, quite a few years before this, I had done work in the Gulf of Mexico using um, uh, the kinds of parameters we have to study uh, ancient oceanographic shifts uh, in, uh, in, well, in that area, particularly that study. And I discovered um, this cooling, this anomalous cooling event in the climate record that I was developing. I was then at Florida State University as a young professor, uh, hence I started work in the Gulf of Mexico nearby. And um, I found that, um, I found there was this anomalous cooling that people, that a few workers had already identified in the North Atlantic region and that which was called the Younger Dryas cooling, but it happened during the last interglacial or deglacial period leading to our warm period that we live in now and it seemed anomalous this cooling but i the main point at that point was that i um i was i identified in the gulf of mexico this cooling and that was a surprise because at that time the young driest cooling the short 1000 year long cooling had only been identified in the high latitudes of the north atlantic uh, in Scandinavia, where it was originally uh, identified by the Norwegian workers, and hence called the Younger Dryas, um, uh, for reasons I'll mention in a minute. But the, but then, uh, then in um, areas around uh, sediment cores around Greenland, and so people were surprised that I was able to find this. That I actually found this in the, the warmer latitudes of the Gulf of Mexico, which which then opened up this whole idea. Really, this. This particular anomalous cooling was um, uh, was was much broader in its magnitude than being limited just to the North Atlantic. So that, that's how I got involved. Well, what happened was I got Nick Sharperton, who was at University of Cambridge University, England, to uh, work with me on this these cores in the Gulf of Mexico because he was one of the few specialists at that time to. Um, run oxygen isotopes on on these calcium carbonate or, um, planktonic and benthic uh, microfossils that we have that, that, uh, re, uh, uh, preserved uh, preserved in excuse me I'll, no worries I'll, I'll let it run okay um, sorry I'll turn that off um, these these microfossils are, are calcium carbonate. And they are uh, found uh, pervasively in, in sediment cores. So um, uh, I got them to run oxygen isotopes uh, on these microfossils across this across this uh, cooling event, this the, the deglacial, including, including this younger driest period. And um, there was a big surprise. We got a big surprise. So we found that the um, uh, that the the major meltwater channel uh, from the melting uh, major ice sheet in uh, North America, uh, covering all of Canada at that point, pretty all of Canada and parts of northern US, uh, this major ice sheet was melting and all that water was running down the Mississippi from this great lake called Lake Agassiz, uh, which covers about three or four states and including a couple of provinces of Canada, Manitoba, parts of Saskatchewan, 
centered in South uh, North Dakota, so forth. Big, big lake. It's the biggest lake, we, the biggest lake or paleo lake known to humans anywhere at any time. This is a massive lake, Lake Agassiz. And this, with this Lake Agassiz lake was, was building up, uh, built up because all this melting water ran into it from the melting ice sheet. But the water had to go somewhere, so it went out at that time down the Mississippi uh, River into the Gulf of Mexico. It didn't go uh, east into the Atlantic or north into the Arctic because that, that, those then were blocked by the ice sheet itself. So the channels were then south, and we discovered that the that this um, this uh, all this water was flushing into the Gulf and lowering the salinity, the surface salinity of the, of the of the Gulf of Mexico became quite fresh. The surface waters, and being uh, fresh, it floats, so it's right at the surface, and these. These bugs that we were measuring uh, picked the signal up, and but but to, but further further than that, uh, we then discovered that the there, there was a sudden decrease of the flow of this fresh water into the Gulf of Mexico via this great Mississippi River. Then, uh, and that we guess where it was. It was at the onset of this younger Dryas period, dated at twelve point eight thousand years ago. So. What we discovered then was that there was a plumbing, what we call a plumbing shift. There was a continental plumbing shift of all this water that was being produced by the melting ice sheet from the Gulf of Mexico. We believe then uh, mostly out into the eastern, uh, into the, uh, the western North Atlantic through the, um, uh, the, the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the St. Lawrence River, Gulf of St. Lawrence out there. So it, it, that was the big plumbing shift. So that's how I got interested in the Younger Dryas. So even at that early stage, I knew that there had been a, a major, uh, that this was a major event when you get a, such a plumbing shift. And we don't know of any other times when you had such a plumbing shift uh, before or after. It would seem to be unique. We didn't see it anywhere else in the, in the paleoceanographic record. And so that's how I got into, into the Younger Dryas uh, and it, right from the beginning was anomalous and need explanation. So when um, this, so when this discovery was made of uh, the discovery of spherules in some of these sites associated uh, with the onset of this Younger Dryas cooling event in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, I was just straight away interested because there was no other hypotheses to me that uh, easily or readily explained what I knew about the Younger Dryas. Okay, so um, let's that's, that's, that's give us some background anyway at this point. Very good. And, and so just to, just to, to circle back, um, so there was a, a Michigan University researcher that was studying Clovis um, civilizations or, or Clovis artifacts or Clovis sites. And, and that was the, the sort of synthesis of the discovery then of the potential impact hypothesis? That, that was the initial discovery, just one site. One location, this place called Ganey in Michigan, and uh, and uh, that's indeed uh, further work showed that this was that the, the date was in fact the onset of the Younger Dryas at Ganey, and uh, but that was just the one. We now have we now have fifty sites uh, globally worldwide. Uh, yes, the, the, this what we I'm getting ahead of myself, but basically what we discovered was a layer. Was a, was a layer, a thin layer, 
in uh, many sites, now, as I say, now up to 50 or more sites globally, it's a thin layer um, that we can date quite accurately to 12.8 thousand years, plus or minus about 50, 50 to 100 years. It's not, not precisely dated in the, in the, um, the sediment records, uh, but it's plus or minus 50. There's a, there's, there's a little bit of range in the age, but we, we, we dated it we, on average at 12.8 plus or minus, but um, the, the date has been, um, uh, the date later was uh, uh, um, confirmed for the Younger Dryas uh, through the, the, the dating of the Greenland ice sheet core, uh, Greenland ice sheet cores. Now, why can you date Greenland ice sheet cores at high resolution? Well, it's because as the, as the Greenland ice is accumulating, it, it, it accumulates year by year and leaves annual valves, just like valves and tree rings, in a sense, but this is an ice. And um, so what they've done, the, uh, both the American groups and the European groups on these Greenland ice cores is to date, date the sequence by counting these annual valves. And uh, it seems remarkable, but that, so the chronology in Greenland is even better than we have in marine core, in, in, in cores. Uh, and sequences that we have on on land um, because it's almost annual. So uh, and so yes, the uh, the onset of the younger Dryas in Greenland is also dated at, at twelve point eight, a thousand years ago, and um, so uh, that's uh, so we had a pretty fair idea of the age. We we did radiocarbon ages dating uh, in all of these sites. Uh, um, to um, establish the chronology and all that. that's that was quite a lot of radiocarbon dating now radiocarbon dating I don't know for the listeners if they're familiar with it, but basically it's based on uh, the production of carbon-14 which is done in the high atmosphere and um, uh, It's constantly being produced, but once it's formed it's a, ra it's a radioactive isotope of carbon carbon-14 but once it's once it's been formed, it start it, it gets uh, mixed into the general atmosphere. Uh, it's it's a it's a uh, relatively rare type of carbon uh, isotope, um, and um, but then it uh, degrades basically uh, de de degrades uh, steadily through time, up to uh, and it actually runs out basically uh, runs out about after about forty to fifty thousand years, and so you, by determining you know using sophisticated approaches. Determining that that rate the uh, the um, the amount of carbon fourteen in a sample that you're trying to date, like a bone or a piece of plant, a, a fossil plant, um, you can you can determine the age based on just the amount of of carbon fourteen uh, that is remaining relative to other the other isotopes of carbon, and give you a pretty precise age, as long as you do everything correctly and you're not contaminating samples and things like that. Well, we've done that and we've done it uh, on so many sites. We've actually got a, a very good accurate age when you, when you put all these sites together and, and, and do a, a statistical analysis, you come out with, with, with a mean age of about 12.8 plus or minus about 50 years. Excellent, excellent. So let's just, let's just step back a moment and uh, look at a, a sort of larger picture. Um, and if you can provide the listeners with sort of a brief overview of the major climatic patterns and shifts during the Cenozoic era. Um, right. Yes. Well, the big story really 
in, for the Cenozoic is its beginning. The, the, one of the big stories is the very beginning of the so-called Cenozoic or tertiary, if you like to call it that. And that's at 65 million years ago. And, and ironically, that, that um, boundary is well known, of course, to be the time of a major uh, cosmic impact with Earth. Uh, in, in, fact, in fact, the Gulf of Mexico area. Um, and uh, this was about a, uh, was a huge, it was a huge impact that caused a formation of a crater. What was about 130, 130, uh, 130 kilometers or something, exact, what is the, the uh, diameter of that crater? It's about 130 kilometers, it's huge. Um, has now, of course, been discovered and studied, but um, that, that, of course, is well known to have knocked off, uh, caused the extinction of probably all the large animals of Earth and all the dinosaurs, the related other reptiles, big reptiles, the marine reptiles, the flying reptiles, the pterosaurs, all these kinds of well-known big animals. They uh, pretty well, they all it became extinct abruptly and uh, some, some of the smaller critters, like the small mammals that occurred at that time, then had the opportunity to basically uh, uh, become dominant in the Cenozoic. And so, of course, the Cenozoic is known as the, the age of mammals and, of course, the age of birds. And, uh, of course, the, the preceding Mesozoic, including the Cretaceous, was, was known as the age of the, age of the reptile, the age of the dinosaurs. They were the dominant mega what we call megafauna. So um, uh, the so so basically, you start you're starting a whole new leaf at the beginning of the Cenozoic, and that was caused by this massive extinction, far far larger than what, what we have what we have in the uh, the younger that occurred at the younger Dryas talk on eight thousand years ago. So and the consequence was far more severe, of course. So uh, so. Starting with that, then the, really the big, really the big story of the Cenozoic, in terms of its environmental evolution, is that at the beginning of the Cenozoic and in the periods we call the Paleocene and the Eocene, the climate was really quite warm uh, globally, uh, and uh, all the evidence indicates this. And if you look at the Antarctic at that time, and the Arctic, the high latitudes. Uh, they were really uh, almost subtropical. They were temperate to to cool cool subtropical and temperatures. There were extensive, uh, extensive plant assemblages, um, probably low-grade forests living in, um, in Antarctica. Uh, there was virtually no ice accumulation in the high latitudes. It was as a non, there was, there was no, uh, essentially no major ice accumulations on Earth through those first million, tens of millions of years in the, in the Cenozoic. But that changed at about 30, about 30, um, uh, four million years ago, when uh, at the beginning, at the end of the Eocene, beginning of the Oligocene, when the um, uh, uh, when, when the ice began to uh, form on the Antarctic, and so that's what that was the beginning of ice sheet formation on Antarctica um, at, at the beginning of the Oligocene. That was a big event, and that itself then cooled the ocean. So the oceans are big players in this, of course, is a big player in this whole climate uh, uh, scenario or history. 
the, so the oceans cooled very abruptly in, major, in a major way at the beginning of the Oligocene, 35 million years ago. And um, so we go from this warm earth to a to a sort of icebox earth, the beginning of an icebox earth, the beginning of the Oligocene. And then, so the, the ice sheets uh, was only confined to the southern hemisphere. There's nothing in the, there's no evidence of anything like that in the, in the Canadian Arctic region at all. That was relatively temperate still. Um, so, um, uh, and then the, then the next major leap in ice development, because that's the story of the Cenozoic, is really the expansion of the of, of the cold parts of the of the hemispheres that's the big story and um so you get to the middle miocene about 15, 14 million years ago and there's another stepwise increase in the strength of the of the antarctic ice um and then that uh, continued upwards uh, this this uh, expanded ice condition of the earth and that ex extended upwards um into the um, uh, about nearly uh, about nearly two million years ago, and that's when we start. We, we have what we call the Pleistocene or the true ice ages, and so what happened then was that the um, there was a further step in the the cooling of the Earth and the, the build up of um, uh, high latitude ice. Um, and that, but that well, most of the action then was in the um, in the northern hemisphere in the Arctic, and that's where we saw the, the the beginning of major ice sheet formations over North America, uh, Canada in particular, northern U.S. and also Western Europe. So these big ice sheets, the so-called Laurentide ice sheet of North America, and the Fennoscandian ice sheet in um, over Scandinavia, mostly Scandinavia. Those, those build up with a vengeance. And those continue to build, those ice sheets continue to build through this uh, Pleistocene time, beginning at about, um, uh, you know, beginning at about two, uh, two million years ago. And then it, it just progressively it's in steps uh, expanding. So that, that brings you to about 700,000 years ago. And there was a further expansion of the ice sheets to, and they became particularly large and particularly dominant and they but what is characteristic of this this, this ice what we call this ice age period was that uh, it was um, it was oscillating uh, oscillating between what we call glacials and interglacials and um, the glacier for most of the time in the in the last seven hundred thousand years the, the Earth actually has been in what we call a severe ice age condition with these big ice sheets in the northern hemisphere um, and expanded ice in Antarctica. Um, the, uh, this, uh, but these, these oscillate on, 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 on periodicities, major periodicities about every 100,000 years. So every 100,000 years, you throw in an interglacial. And these are these short periods, only 10% of the time, um, the, that we call interglacials, and we happen to live in one of these now. In fact, nearly all of human, well, pretty or nearly all of human civilization and development have occurred uh, in this interglacial period over the last, you know, 7,000 years or whatever it is, when much of, much of our civilization has developed, human civilization. Um, so th this is, this is uh, 
the humans have actually the humans took took advantage of this this warm glacial free time um, but on any circumstances uh, in the future of course it would return it would return to a glacial state and of course as Colin Summerhays has summarized in his podcast this has caused this these these climatic periodic switch, switches between glaciers and interglacials um, are caused by this dance, this dance of the, um, of the earth around, around the sun and, and the, the changing ang angles of the earth in relation to the sun and the, the changing distances of the, with the earth and, and the sun. They're very slight, there are very slight changes, but they do change the amount of radiation coming to Earth, and these trigger, only trigger, they don't cause everything, they, they trigger these, uh, these shifts of warmings and coolings in a periodic way to, as a result of this dance of the Earth around the sun. And, um, uh, and uh, so uh, the, what, what most of the work, most of the work that in making these shifts uh, cause large-scale changes in the global environment are done by feedback mechanisms on Earth. Um, you know, the reflectivity of ice, uh, so there's less, less uh, heat uh, retained on Earth when there's more ice, so a lot of it gets reflected back into space, but there's more absorption of, of, of heat when there's less ice. These are feedback mechanisms that exaggerate those slight period, periodic uh, changes caused by the heat. Uh, uh, by the, uh, the sun, the Earth's orbit. So if we look back then through that 65 million years, um, that sun-Earth ephemeris uh, influence, that's, that's the, the trigger then for most of these uh, onset and then the warming and then the cooling? Only the short-term ones. Okay. Only the short-term ones. The, the, so there's a lot more to the story than that. Uh, the, uh, basically, the... Um, the, the, you can get 400,000 year periodicities, 100,000 year, 20,000, 40,000 year periodicities related to this dance I'm talking about. But the, the big changes, the big changes in, uh, in, in the global climate over the last uh, 65 million years are largely driven by changes in the, uh, the geography of the Earth through uh, continental drift, the plate tectonics. The, the, the opening up of oceans, the closing up of oceans through uh, continental drift, um, plate tectonics. Um, and these, uh, what these do is they change ocean circulation. Um, uh, and with those changes in ocean circulation, that, that changes the, um, uh, the, uh, the efficiency of, of, of moving heat from the, uh, from the low latitude areas and the tropics to the high latitude areas. And so the, both atmospheric circulation and, and ocean circulation change. And so as that changes, the, the heat distribution changes on Earth. So you can build up ice sheets or you can melt ice sheets depending on, on that circulation. And one of the great stories, of course, of the Cenozoic was the, uh, was the, uh, the movement of, the, of the, the Southern Hemisphere continents, namely Austra particularly Australia, but also uh, Africa, uh, uh, and uh, so forth, uh, moving these continents away from Antarctica. As they moved away from Antarctica, 
this formed the, uh, the Southern Ocean surrounding the Antarctic. And so uh, in a sense that it, it, um, the Antarctic climate system became its, its own self. And so with, the, uh, with that circulation shift, uh, this uh, cooled, basically thermally isolated Antarctica from these warm currents that, were, that could potentially transfer heat towards the Antarctic and keep it warm. Those were cut off and so Antarctica cooled down. And, and that's why we have this decoupling between the northern and southern hemisphere that even though the, the ice was growing in Antarctica, we had a much different uh, climate up north. Yeah, with the continental drift, the Antarctica became uh, particularly prone to the development of ice sheets earlier, earlier than what happened in the, in, in the northern hemisphere. That occurred later. Now, of course, I haven't mentioned that those, those changes in ocean circulation, including the, um, uh, including the, uh, the circulation that occurs in the deep ocean and the intermediate waters of the ocean, we're talking about most of the water on Earth is deep in the ocean, and what happens there has a big effect on the global climate. Well, that, um, that, 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 that ocean circulation changed and, um, uh, and it had added the, the dimension towards the Cenozoic uh, 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 glacial development. The oceans basically cooled down. Uh, and a lot of the story about global climate is really what happens in the oceans. Yes, yes. Ocean, as you know, is the dominant part of Earth. Absolutely. So am I correct then in, in classifying the Younger Driest climate episode as a, as a major anomalous event uh, within the Cenozoic era in terms of its timing, magnitude, and duration? Uh, it's, it's, um, in terms, of, in terms of, of its climate, the magnitude of its climate change, uh, not so. Uh, there's, there's, there are these kinds of episodes that occur through time that aren't necessarily related to, to impacts. But, um, but what, um, what, what is particularly uh, anomalous about the Younger Dryas were the, uh, the, the, uh, the consequences, the, con the environmental consequences of the event. And namely, there was just enormous, uh, enormous numbers of extinctions of large animals um, at, the, at the onset of the Younger Dryas 12,000 years ago. This is incredibly anomalous. On, on a, when you think about the last 65 million years, it's, it's not as of such magnitude as what happened at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, of course, but there's, not, there's nothing, this is very, very anomalous that so many animals that lived in so many environments in deserts and high, high altitudes and plains and grasslands and forests, that all these animals, or most of these animals, and uh, certainly in the Americas and parts of Europe, just suddenly went extinct. And um, that that that's not a that's that's very very anomalous in terms of the climate. The um, the mag the what is anomalous about the climate um, and the um, the oceanographic changes, and it is anomalous, but but uh, not so much as anomalous as the extinctions uh, of animals. But the is the um, um, is the, uh, is the timing. The, the, um, the Younger Dryas cooling, because there was a cooling in the Northern Hemisphere uh, with the expansion of the minor expansions of the ice sheets again, um, that shouldn't have occurred because 
the, it occurred at a time when the, the dance of the earth around the sun was making it warmer. We were in a, a strong deglacial period when things uh, warmed. There shouldn't have been a cooling episode when, when the driving force, when the driving forces for, for climate were towards warming. And yet we have this, so that, that, was, it's always, that was always an anomalous um, characteristic of the Younger Dry. And when you look at the previous deglacial in, intervals, um, like every previous, for 700,000, the, the previous seven um, uh, previous deglacial, deglacial intervals that lead to uh, this warming like we uh, enjoy in the Holocene, our present day climate, there's, there's nothing in those, de there's no evidence of such a perturbation in any of those deglacial episodes. It's, it's confined to the very last one, remarkably, which is the one that uh, where human, where humans were, uh, you know, getting getting uh, going on Earth, and of course that that is why um, the, the earlier hypothesis, an earlier hypothesis, which actually I believed at that you know some years ago, was that because of the coincidence of, of human of human occupation and development. Um, that it was it was a, a sort of a um, it was easy to suggest sort of in a superficial way that that humans had knocked off all these animals because they it coincided it coincided with the um, you know with this uh, with this uh, the human activity and uh, well that, there's there's no evidence for there's no any significant evidence in support of that but. But that was a, one of the, of course, one of the early going concerns that what, what knocked off all these animals was humans. Uh, well, not so, but uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, that, 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 those so, researchers clearly never tried to uh, wrestle a, uh, an elk or a moose or, uh, or a mastodon uh, with, with a wooden spear and a stone tip. I mean, I don't think that's a plausible hypothesis. That's an interesting concept, right, what you just said. And because the humans, and it's interesting that the the the, uh, the, the archaeologists are pushing, steadily pushing back the times, the time at which humans have actually have occupied North America. It's been pushed back pretty solidly now to about fourteen or fifteen thousand years now, um, and now and in fact there's this evidence suggesting that it could be back eighteen thousand years that humans were actually here on North America. So this is this this is in the works, of course, but but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, they, if the humans have been here since 18,000 18, years ago. Perhaps not earlier than that, because then you're getting really into this ice age, uh, the solid ice age. But um, but basically, um, there was an ongoing hypothesis, you know, 10, 10 years ago or so. Uh, it was called Clovis First, when the this Clovis culture, which is a pretty sophisticated Stone Age culture of human North American humans, and they had they produced wonderful, wonderful stone tools, beautiful and, and even artistic ones. Um, they um, uh, that they they didn't they, they even even with that sophistication, not only they were they their evidence suggests they'd only been here in North America that particular culture for about three hundred years, and then they were suddenly gone. The Clovis culture. I'm not saying all the people disappeared, but the Clovis culture suddenly disappeared. Guess where? Right at 12.8 thousand years ago, uh, at the onset of the Younger Dryas. At the very same time as the extinction of many of these big animals, 
And so uh, it's, it just doesn't add up um, that, um, that these, these people could have, uh, even, even the Clovis Stone Age culture, I mean, the, the populations were just too small. Yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the animal population's too large. <laughs> the animal population, it's hard to estimate, but I mean, you had the great bison, for instance. The great bison, uh, which became extinct at 12.8 thousand years ago, and but that, that particular form of bison is enormous compared with the modern bison, which is really quite wimpish, uh, compared with the great bison. It, uh, that, um, that, uh, uh, that great bison would have occurred in huge numbers, like the modern bison. It would have occurred in huge numbers. And some of these other animals, like the camels, they would have occurred in large numbers. The horses, the, horses, the horses would have been very abundant in their herds in, in parts of, of North America. And so um, we, we're dealing with uh, probably more than maybe 10, uh, 10, 20 million animals, I mean, big animals. And that's, that's a, that's, that, would be, that would be a conservative estimate, but it's only an estimate. We're dealing with tens of millions of animals with populations of humans that probably are in the order of just tens of thousands uh, and you know, scattered around. But it's interesting to think that the Clovis, the Clovis uh, culture did leave a, a stronger a footprint with their tools than the, the previous cultures, which is kind of interesting, suggesting that the previous cultures, the pre-Clovis cultures, living in, were pretty small and uh, limited. And the question is why? Why didn't they take off? It may be that they, um, I mean, these, these people had to deal with these large animals. Uh, and um, they were on the menu as well. They were on the menu as well. And this, this is speculation, of course. But why, uh, they, their fingerprint is much lower when they were living with these animals. But the Clovis, peach, the Clovis culture was more sophisticated and, uh, they, and also their tools were better. And basically, maybe that's, that's an answer to why they, they actually expanded at, um, for 300 years before, they dis before the culture disappeared. Sure, sure. Yeah. Now, with, with the Younger Dryas, uh, the onset of that, what was the, what was the timing there? Um, the, the, the timing of the Younger Dryas onset. I mean, we, we were going into this warming trend, and then there's this sudden uh, cooling period. What was, the, what was the, the, the duration of that change from, from the warming trend to the, to the sudden cooling? Oh, okay. Uh, well, about one year. Can you take that? Is that that fast? Uh, yes, the, uh, the, uh, the Greenland ice cores can provide that kind of resolution. We can't provide that kind of resolution with the, uh, the photographic resolution with the, with the sites that we have, have dealt with, the multiple sites. We knew it's, it's obviously very abrupt. But the, the Greenland ice sheet, um, it's basically, uh, it was the, the cooling was immediate. Um, uh, and um, it uh, was, and it was, um, Oh, you, you probably, you're talking about a, just a few years of a very extremely intense uh, environmental perturbation. Um, it's a few years and then maybe a cooling, the Greenland ice sheet suggests about a further coolings of about the next 150 years. And then, so the, the, the younger dryas as recorded in the Greenland ice sheet, which is one of the best records, uh, shows that the the coolest period of the younger dryas is the very beginning 
uh, near the very beginning, 100, 150 years. And then it, then it started to, to uh, basically uh, warm up a little bit, but it lasted, you know, uh, 1,100 years. So whatever happened, the perturbation caused feedbacks in the, uh, in the ocean system, the ocean system uh, and so forth, that then that retained that, that, uh, that system, that, that climate, that anomalous climate system for 1,100 years, which is quite a long time before it bounced back into what we call the, the warm Holocene, which we live in now. So um, that was that was the uh, the time required for the Earth's climatic systems to recover from from that event, and and so we haven't touched on it yet. So what was the cause of this uh, uh, the the onset of the Younger Dryas? Well, if they hadn't, well, you, this is we're talking about this cosmic impact. It was the trigger. The ultimate trigger was the was this cosmic impact with Earth. Which we have an abundance of data occurred in this layer we trace around and. And I can talk about the Greenland ice sheet, what's occurred, the evidence that, it, that is in there. It's a remarkable record. Um, uh, but uh, yes, it, um, the, the ultimate cause was the, uh, was the cosmic impact. Um, if the cosmic impact had not occurred, if there had been no cosmic impact of this magnitude with Earth, um, the Earth would have continued to warm through the, this warming, this driven warming period that should have been the case. Uh, into uh, into what we have now, um, and so the the so-called interglacial would be about three thousand years longer than than, than what we have. Is our present interglacial began at the end of the Younger Dryas at about eleven eleven point um, what was it eleven point six eleven point six thousand years ago eleven thousand six hundred years ago. That's the beginning of the Holocene. And uh, so the, the Younger Dryas lasted about uh, 1.2, 1.2, uh, uh, years. Um, and, and so, are, are we talking about a comet or an asteroid or or what? What yeah. uh, sort of what sort of object are we talking about? That's a good question, and um, it's it's not firmly uh, firmly resolved yet. But our preferred the, our our the comet research group, our preferred hypothesis has, has always been that it was a fragmented comet. Um, that the Earth uh, was, intercept, was, was intercepted by a cometary cloud. Uh, was, in other words, a comet that was actually fragmented. Uh, and um, uh, there was a lot of, a lot of impacts. Uh, th there were a lot of impacts with Earth. It just couldn't you, the analogy would be a lot of nuclear explosions, meaning hundreds to thousands potentially. Uh, most of these would be in the atmosphere, atmospheric uh, uh, explosions and not ground explosions. Um, so uh, uh, yes, that, that's our preferred. Now, why why is that our preferred hypothesis? Well, we we prefer that because of the of the of the the, the geochemistry of the impact material. Um, we we're seeing uh, high uh, high abundances of platinum rather than iridium. We're seeing hot, slightly higher iridium. Uh, so it's actually an, uh, the geochemistry of the impact is quite. Uh, it, it, may, it suggests it might be unusual and stony rather than a, a very hard iron-rich uh, asteroid that hit the Earth. The the KT boundary is clearly a, a big chunk of very hard uh, hard um, uh, uh, asteroid. Um, 
as you as you might imagine occurs in the in the center of the earth for instance a material that's very heavy very dense um, very solid uh, that kind of material hit the earth kt boundary but for, for the ydb we, uh, the evidence is, suggests that it's probably more crustal material that formed the comet and the, the so you have a comet with a tail and the tail uh, 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 the comet itself may have some of this uh, this hard material uh, but a large part of it that makes up the, the tail form would be uh, frag fragments uh, fragments of the comet and um, this uh, so you get multiple our, our preferred hypothesis it's a multiple impact phenomena rather than a single a single impact phenomena and uh, that of course will develop as as the, as the hypothesis theory develops we get more information but um, and so why one of the reasons we suggest as multiple impacts is that we have uh, milk glass in other words milk rocks milk rock material in uh, four or five locations from Syria through different parts of North America and this this um, this melt material is too large. It's too large to be transported through the atmosphere. Uh, it's not. It's not fine granular. So that itself suggests that it's close to uh, to individual impact individual impactors. So that's our preferred hypothesis. And it's not, not crucial, but it's uh, but it's a preferred hypothesis. The other thing I should mention is that while we're on 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 this is that. There has been a discovery of a, a major crater. Um, it's called the Hiawatha Crater, in in uh, northern, in, uh, which is it sits below the ice sheet of northern Greenland, near the edge of the northern Greenland ice sheet. It's under the ice about about a kilometer, and uh, this was discovered about three years ago and written up with great excitement. Uh, of course, we're very interested in that because the 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 evidence the evidence suggests that it is a Pleistocene age. Um, or even young Pleistocene age, um, but there's been no direct, as yet there's been no direct da age dating of that crater because it's sitting beneath the ice sheet. They've done seismic activity, they've done seismic uh, analysis uh, of, the, of the crater area, uh, meaning that they, sound, they send sound waves down uh, from aircraft and um, they can build up a map of um, reflective uh, layers within the ice, and so they can they can trace these um, these layers away from the crater. They can actually see the crater, and uh, in quite great detail based on the seismic analysis, um, they can define it its characteristics, which is quite remarkable. High resolution without actually being seeing the crater, they can actually determine some, quite a lot about it. Um, and the uh, the overall evidence is that it's really quite young, um, but the, the the authors were reluctant to to come out and s say that it potentially was uh, formed at the at the young at the, at the uh, onset of the younger Dryas. But when you trace these layers that they describe in their contributions, um, trace the, the layers that they define away and or into uh, away from the crater or in and into the crater the area. You can actually see um, the, the the layers disappear because of the, the because of the, the influence of the crater. You see the crater formation, and so that gives you some idea, but not conclusive, but some idea that it's 
in a, in a bubble, it's in a, a time bubble, uh, it's really limited to about three or 4,000 years between the uh, end of the Younger Dryas and the, uh, what we call the, uh, 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 the uh, end, the, the end of the, the the end of the last ice age, um, about you know somewhere about fifteen thousand years ago. So, um, if you look at the data, it's suggested that it that it's probably at that age, um, that, 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 that the younger dryas, uh, and it's very likely to to turn out to be that. There are actually going to be some drilling next year, oh. not by us, but by uh, separate groups who are going to go in and drill uh, some ice cores that are. I think 30, as close as 30 kilometers uh, from the crater. And uh, so, they, so they'll be able to get ice, they'll be able to get ice and look at layers. To, and so hopefully they'll get material that they can actually do a direct date on the, uh, on the crater itself by the stuff that's been thrown out during the crater formation. But anyway, the crater is 31 kilometers in diameter it's, um, it's, it, we find, it, I'm, that's what I'm talking about, because we're quite excited about it. And it's, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, you, we're waiting with great interest to see how the data uh, comes out. Um, but it's, uh, this crater is, um, it's the second largest crater known for the last five million years. And it's the third largest crater, believe it or not, known on Earth for the last 35 million years. Oh. This is uh, the crater is 31 kilometers, and so it's a big, big. It's a big. Uh, it's a big feature, and so it would have. It would have. Uh, this would have impacted uh, about through about a um, two probably estimated about two kilometers of ice at that time, and so the volumes of the volumes of material um, that would have been produced of the volumes of water that would have been just uh, uh, formed, it would have gone into the atmosphere. We were enormous, and um, uh, this would have had uh, very just all this water going to the atmosphere would have had pretty itself strong environmental consequences to the global atmosphere. Uh, and I would imagine, I would imagine that wouldn't be there would be a, a mixture of mud and water, and that it would be a you know kind of a, a soup that would be ejected from the, the crater. Uh, some soup, but most, much of the, uh, the much of most of the material would be the ice itself, and not the, not the, uh, the, the base of the ice, the, the, the rock at the base of the ice. Right. But anyway, okay. um, we will follow that in great detail, but uh, you know, with great interest. I mean, uh, in the future, but it's uh, it's exciting, and um, it just shows that we there's a lot about impact cratering that cratering that we just don't know because when you think about it. I mean, most of the Earth is ocean, and you know, seventy percent, seventy seventy-five percent of the Earth's surface is ocean, and these these impactors uh, will come in, and it'd be very hard to. It was hard enough to find this one in Greenland under the ice, so these these events probably are just hard to find. And, oh. uh, so, what and what other evidence do we have in terms of impact proxies that support the hypothesis? Well, uh, a lot. At this stage, uh, there's um, a large amount of, uh, a large number of proxies. There's, I don't know if you can see it, but here uh, there's 20, <laughs> I made a list here of 20, uh, of 20 proxies. Oh, wow. 
Credit boxes and all of these have been published in multiple papers. With the the uh, the impact group and other independent workers have published large numbers of papers on this now on this this whole this whole uh, hypothesis. And uh, there have been many many uh, many specialists who are experts in running certain analyses, requiring you know real sophistication uh, of knowledge. Um, but uh, so, the, but some of the larger ones, some of the more important ones that we use uh, for identifying the impact layer include, uh, you know, high temperature, uh, high temperature spherules. These can be uh, magnetic iron type spherules, or they can be uh, spherules made of uh, that are silica rich, silica rich, uh, high temperature, glassy spherules. Um, the uh, uh, there's, there's milk glass, actual milk glass. We actually have milk in Abu Herrera in Syria. We have, um, um, uh, we discovered uh, milk glass into into uh, or covering uh, bones of animals that were part that were actually uh, part of the impact. Um, so you, see, you can see high temperature glassy uh, glassy materials uh, associated with bones. Uh, that's unusual. But we we got it at that site. Uh, there's nano diamonds. Uh, nano diamonds um, were a, a very valuable proxy in some of our earlier work. And nano diamonds are formed as a result of, of uh, high pressure and high temperature uh, resulting from asteroids. It's very hard to form nano diamonds except having uh, except having very extremely high pressure of impact. And uh, high, high and high temperatures also potentially. Um, nano diamonds are very, um, uh, you know, they're very small, as and you have to have use extremely uh, demanding analytical approaches to um, uh, to concentrate the mitha there. And so we found in the YDB layer that there were concentrations of, of nano diamonds. Uh, they're about, um, to give you an idea of the size of nanodiamonds, you get about, you take the, 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 take a single coronavirus and uh, that would, uh, a nanodiam that would equal about the diameter of about three, three nanodiamonds. So you get one, three nanodiamonds per single coronavirus. To give so, you so we're talking like uh, 10, um, 10 nano uh, meters, something in that nature? nature? That's right. Yeah, 10, 20, 20, 10, 20. 10 to twenty. Yeah. So uh, tiny, tiny, and uh, you know we can we identify these, and they're very valuable in helping us uh, uh, find the, the the YDB and also understand that the YDB layer, the black layer, so-called black layer. The black layer is instantly black because you don't see the you don't see the black layer everywhere, uh, but it's very quite common to see the layer as a dark layer uh, surrounded by lighter sediments. And that dark layer is a result of accumulation of um, charcoal, um, soot, uh, and also uh, unburned organic vegetation. So you get a darker, a dark, darker color to the so-called the black layer. You can trace so this. Let's let's just uh, follow up a little bit more detail on that black mat layer. Uh, so we have a combination of uh, uh, potentially soot. From, and that would be from the burning of grasslands and, and forests, I imagine? Yes. Oh, yes. And there's evidence for that. 
Uh, we you don't see fires everywhere in the in the dark in the we have so many sites now with a lot of variation. Sure. And, I mean, fire the fires would not be everywhere. So like forest fires anyway, you they'll uh, they'll form as a result of where the where the impacts the local impacts occur, with the the aerial impacts. Uh, there'll be quite a lot of variation. That's what we see. But commonly there is uh, evidence of, of burn activity, charcoal sort, and also material that's formed. Other kinds of materials um, that have been identified um, were fullerenes, uh, which are a type of carbon, a cineform carbon. Um, these are this is a pretty unusual form of carbon that is hard to explain, except in the kinds of conditions that occur in an impact. But these are these are anomalous types of, of materials. Um, so uh, yes, uh, there's just such a range of uh, a range of, of proxies that have now been discovered. One of the one of the very uh, strong um, discoveries that in support of the YDB impact theory was the discovery of platinum uh, platinum in the Greenland ice sheet. And I should mention that because that was it was done independently by a group at, at Harvard, and um, the uh, uh, they actually, under the under the uh, uh, suggestion by Wally Broker, who was one of the great earth scientists of the last century, who really he's a friend of mine, but he really he, he really couldn't uh, he couldn't get his mind around the the way the, the onset of the Younger Dryas being caused by a cosmic impact, and um, you know we had discussions. He just simply didn't like it, but no particular reason. It just wasn't in his in his. He, he just, it wasn't as a concept. But so he actually got the group, uh, encouraged the group at Harvard to, to run a series of analyses for um, uh, platinum and iridium, particularly, um, in the, over the key interval in the Greenland ice sheet, uh, above, below the Younger Dryas onset, and uh, trying to disprove, basically disprove, and this is good science. To, to do a good study and try to disprove the hypothesis. If you don't find that's that's the place that you should have had evidence from these very rare uh, trace uh, elements uh, that should be there. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> and, uh, not surprising to us, but to many, uh, they found this rem remarkable peak in platinum at the right at the onset of the Younger Dryas in the Greenland ice sheet. And um, the peak, it's a very, they were able to, to describe the peak. It was, it took about, um, I think the total length, the total length of the, the peak, the uh, duration of the peak of platinum is about 30, like 34 years, 34 years. There's about a 20 year uh, rise in the platinum to a peak, a very, very strong peak, and then it drops off of about 70, something like that. So, so that that would be the, the process of the platinum becoming deposited out of the atmosphere slowly over time. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, and, and being being taken up by the uh, by the ice. Um, they um, there was this, this, uh, there's some increase in iridium, um, but uh, not uh, it is, is it, it is anomalous, but not strongly anomalous. You see, the KT boundary is defined by a very high. Uh, peak in iridium and not platinum. So the YDB impactor was uh, was and the, by the way these elements are not they're not from Earth. 
they, they, they are not characteristic of the Earth's crust at all. They, uh, they can only be readily explained by, by the material that, of, of the uh, impact origin. And um, so, yeah, so um, that was a, a very important discovery. Uh, it was uh, incredibly consistent with, with what we'd been suggesting for some years. That the, that the YDB was in fact um, uh, associated with a with a cosmic impact, and so and so the plot continues to grow and uh, strengthen. So platinum, and of course, we hadn't actually now we actually did not discover the platinum. We could have, we actually the YDB group could have actually discovered the platinum if we'd run for platinum, if we'd actually analysed for platinum. But we analysed. We did quite a few analyses of. For, for Iridium, again, because we influenced what, what, what the record of the KT boundary was. And, um, excuse me. Oh, I'll turn the telephone off, sorry. Um, Perfect. So anyway, um, so, uh, but, so once they discovered the, plat the platinum peak in Greenland, it was, it was obviously a simple thing for us to think, well, we, we should look at our existing YDB layer, the black layer sites where we have all these other moldable uh, indicators of, uh, of an impact to see if there's platinum there. And uh, we didn't have the resolution, the, the, the resolution that the Harvard group had to do their work, but, but, we, had, but we, we found out we had adequate resolution uh, to uh, discover that indeed there was a platinum peak. And for most of the sites, uh, most of the YDB sites that we analyzed, uh, we have a, um, we have found a platinum peak. And uh, so again, it's consistent with, uh, with the whole story that, uh, that this is broad, the uh, probably most of the, uh, th this material, the, this incredibly small fine grain material is widely distributed in the atmosphere. And so you have a global distribution of this material and depo is deposited in in these sequences throughout the throughout the world right and, uh, anyway uh, yeah so i'm not sure if you need more on the on the, on the proxies but no yeah. that that's that's great now what what i did want to do is is just sort of focus in on that uh, the black mat layer and expand upon the the conversation we we're having earlier which yeah. is that we see a very strong clovis signature before this black mat layer, and then almost with a very abrupt uh, uh, passage of time, this stops. And what I wanted to look at is, you know, what were the consequences uh, climatically um, uh, for these people that were there? I mean, there's, you know, many of these, many traditions across the world actually have a story of a flaming serpent or, or something flying through the sky and then, you know, it was raining mud and, and there was darkness and there's sort of these, these myths that have, have moved forward through time. Uh, yeah. So this must have been a very cataclysmic and a very, um, there must have been a tremendous amount of upheaval. Uh, yeah. Can you share with the listeners what your thoughts are on, on what some of those early people bore witness to? Well, there are myths. Uh, yes, there are myths and they've been written up. Uh, we, our, our, the YDB impact group have, have really not got into, 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 into mythology uh, purposely. Um, but other, others have, and that's fine. Uh, and they probably have some, you know, have some basics. But so I don't, I don't really, um, I don't really get into that, into the mythology. But I'm not surprised that, that 
that there is a mythology and that probably will develop in the future. Uh, what, what our challenge was is to keep testing scientifically uh, to uh, test the, uh, this theory, uh, the hypothesis, and I'm calling it a theory, the theory meaning that it, the implications of this impact are, are pretty horrendous to what happened afterwards with humans and with animals and, and uh, with the climate and so forth. And uh, so that keeps us pretty occupied. Um, but the, it's interesting, but the archaeologists see that, that the, uh, in Europe, the archaeologists had long, had long discovered that the, there was a major perturbation in the, uh, in the archaeological record of these Stone Age people um, in, uh, uh, at the beginning of the Younger Dryas. And they were very surprised. This has been expressed to me personally that they were surprised why there was such resistance uh, amongst some archaeologists in North America to this idea uh, when, uh, when, when the European archeologists had long discovered that see, the cave, see there were great cave paintings, that the equivalent, equivalent humans, human populations there were these great cave painters, beautiful cave paintings. Uh, and they had shown that, uh, that the cave painters, uh, uh, that persisted up until guess when, the beginning of the younger dryas, and then the cave painting stopped. There was there was there's a, there's a dark the dark period in the younger dryas when there was little evidence of human culture or, or creativity, and they knew this. Uh, it, was, it was done quite independently and earlier than anything we had done. Um, it was similar actually to the discoveries actually by some of the North American archaeologists, where they they before our work had been done, they had already identified that the determination of the sophisticated Clovis culture and their, their quite beautiful tools uh, was at the onset of the Younger Dryas. They had not, they'd already done that work, but they had, couldn't explain it. So why the, why the Clovis culture had suddenly disappeared. So, but anyway, uh, that, so where does this... Uh, Oh, so the, the, the question, the question specifically is, you know, what those early peoples that were in North America, what did they witness uh, as this as this younger Dryas impact occurred, and what was the antecedent uh, events? You know, what was life like for them uh, during that period? Well, life would have been pretty miserable. I mean, basically, uh, they did so people people did survive the culture. The Clovis culture did not. The culture didn't, but certainly people survived. People are very resilient. See, see, one of the things that the to digress slightly is that the the extinctions the extinctions of the animals are largely restricted to the large ones, the large animals, and that, most of those large animals disappear in North in North and South America. Um, the uh, the small the small animals there's no there's no great there's no uh, evidence that the small animals uh, disappeared like the large animals, and the humans. Are very adaptable, and they they survived. Humans survived, but the but they they uh, there was there was extensive there was extensive burning. Uh, the 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 animal the the animals which which they survived on, like mammoths in particular. The mammoths were one of those species that we know were predated by humans. And by the way, most of those other animals that became extinct, there's very little evidence that humans predated on them. Can you imagine 
humans predating on horses or camels. I mean, the horses, are, they're, they're too tricky to catch. Uh, and they occur in large numbers. They, they, uh, they, humans would have no doubt had been predated on, 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 the, on the great bison. That would have been a very difficult animal to, to uh, exploit, the great bison. My word. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a beast and a half. So, uh, but anyway, um, uh, so, so the conditions were just, the, the conditions were bad and the, the, sub, the, the what, what I can add, we can add, is to, is to suggest what is, the, what is the evidence about population shifts and human activities that we have in North America. Well, the evidence we have is that there was a, a population decline um, of, um, you know, at least 50% of people. Uh, and so how can we say that? So if you take the, there were, there were sites in Southeast United States, there's about 10 of them. There's about 10 sites. And this has all been published. Um, there's about 10 quarry sites in Southeast United States that um, were used uh, for obtaining the, the um, uh, rock material uh, the quartz material shirt uh, for their tools. So this was a this was their this was their huge. This is very important to their technology was to have this shirt. And the, these shirt quarry quarries um, occurred there, and they were well they were well established and producing until the onset of the Younger Dryas. And then the usage, the the archaeological evidence suggests that the usage of those quarry sites just terminated. Essentially, ninety eight percent. They, they, they stopped digging uh, chert materials for their tools. There was no demand. <laughs> there was no demand for those tools for the early part of the Younger Dryas. Then, then, then this returned. So there's, there's, there's evidence of, of, of uh, these quarries. There's also uh, evidence of if, um, Anderson, one of the, who, who did this work, archaeologist Anderson, has published. Um, he looked at the, uh, the, the entire collection um, uh, uh, using, you know, computer data, the entire collection of, of, tool, of Clovis tools and, um, and other tools, subsequent post-Clovis tools in, the, in collections that are in all of the collection. You can do, do this uh, quantitatively and found that the, um, that the, uh, the production of, of tools, overall, the production of tools uh, plummeted uh, at um, at the onset of the Younger Dryas, and and it and persisted for a few hundred years in the early part of the Younger Dryas. So, so there there is evidence that human populations decline, the activities of humans decline, and uh, and it took a few hundred years for this for these uh, for this to reestablish in the Younger Dryas later on in the Younger Dryas. And climatically, I, I believe I read in one of your papers, uh, there, there could have been as much as a 10 degree Celsius uh, drop in temperature, which occurred you know, within a matter of potentially months or certainly within a matter of years. Years, uh, year, uh, days, weeks, yeah, days, weeks, and years, very fast. The, the, the data in Greenland is, is, supports this. There's about a 10 degree drop in temperature. Most of it occurred in just the, the very early part of the Younger Dryas. The 10 degrees centigrade drop in temperature in, in the Greenland record, the, the records of the Younger Dryas that we have, for instance, in Santa Barbara, surface waters here, which I studied here in Santa Barbara in California, um, 
it's about three, it's about, um, it's a couple of degrees centigrade, which is pretty big for mid-latitude, two or three degrees centigrade drop, surface water, the ocean. So the surface, in the Northern Hemisphere, I'm talking about, the tropics was a little change. There's virtually no change in temperature in the tropics. Uh, that's, but that's characteristic of the, of these cool, inter, of these cool, all these cool intervals. You get very large, you get larger temperature shifts at the high latitudes and these taper off as you move towards the, uh, move towards the tropics. So when, so when, uh, when, when uh, proponents of climate change suggest that the, the extinction of these animals resulted from, um, from temperature changes, they ignore two things. One, that the tropics, the temperature changes did not occur in the tropics. Okay. Uh, so, so the climate didn't change a heck of a lot in the, trop the tropical regions. The tropical regions shifted, yes. They, those zones shifted into the southern hemisphere, which I'll talk about in a minute. But the, um, but they, uh, the, you could not, there's no, there's no climate change to cause extinction of tropical megafauna. You see, so these these hypotheses are very tenuous when you in the data doesn't support it. Um, so uh, and that brings up the the, the concept, the, the the observations actually that the that the younger dryas cooling is a northern hemisphere phenomena. It's, it's it resulted from the sudden cooling that occurred. Um, uh, in the northern hemisphere, then ex and the expansion of the of the sea ice in the Arctic, and uh, and some of the uh, the ice sheet again. Um, but what what happened then was that as I, as I just mentioned, the, the the cooling of the northern hemisphere pushed these climatic zones to this into the into the southern hemisphere. All of the all of these climatic zones moved shifted southwards into the into the mid mid and high latitudes of the of the southern hemisphere. And what, what the effect was, was that it actually warmed the high latitudes and mid latitudes, especially the high latitudes of the southern hemisphere. So the younger dryas, the, the younger dryas is marked by cooling in the high latitudes of the northern hemisphere and warming, believe it or not, in the high latitudes of the southern hemisphere, including the Antarctic continent. Mm. This is called the, the climatic seesaw. It's, it's quite common in other climatic episodes that have nothing to do with impact. It's, it's a quite a common phenomenon. So it's the climatic seesaw uh, yeah, where warming, cooling, warming, cooling and between the, the, the two polar spheres. And, uh, and, and because, the, because the, what happens in terms of the ocean surrounding the, um, these, these high latitude uh, glacial regions of the Arctic, and the Antarctic, that can, that the processes of deep water formation uh, are strong uh, are strongly linked to the climate of the continent at that time, and that can actually I'm trying to make it simple here, but basically that either warms or cools the uh, the waters that are filling up the deep ocean, because that's the source of the most of the deep and intermediate waters of the ocean they actually come from these high latitude regions, so. So much of, the, much of the, the, the temperature of the world's oceans is controlled by what's happening in the polar region. So when the Antarctic warms, the deep sea warms, you see. Right, right. And, uh, and that, of course, has a big effect on, on uh, the, the temperature of the oceans has a big effect on the, uh, the, uh, uh, the 
abundance of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so that's a greenhouse gas. So the, um, the, 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 the increases and decreases of carbon dioxide are linked to oceanic temperatures and, the, and hence our feedbacks into the global climate. Right. And, and that, that relationship is as the oceans warm, they release CO2 and as they cool, they're pulling CO2 in. Is that correct? Exactly right. So, so that's what happened, for instance, when the ice ages began, to, when these big glaciers started to form in Antarctica and subsequently in the Arctic, as, as these areas became cooler and cooler, the oceans became cooler and the CO2 was, uh, there's more CO2 that could be a, 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 um, accumulated in, the, in, the, in all this water in the oceans and that drew down the CO2 from the atmosphere and as a feedback enhanced the cooling enhance the cooling of the earth and so that's the big story of the Cenozoic and so the 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 relative changes in the in the greenhouse gases particularly CO2 but also methane it plays a role uh, is a big feedback mechanism in the in the history of climate of the earth uh, interesting uh, and so and with those ocean currents I mean obviously the the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic North Atlantic was uh, inhibited by that uh, pulse of fresh water that came in and so that the, the warming would have been focused and and, and circulated southward and, and warmed those oceans until the that process uh, restarted yes I, I really should say something about that plumbing I, I started talking about the plumbing shift earlier in this discussion I should just what you you, you you raise that issue and I should actually just uh, talk about the plumbing shift and, and the effect it had the continental plumbing shift and the effect it had on ocean circulation so because so now we have, we have some pretty good evidence of where the uh, where the plumbing where, where the plumbing shifts occurred around the the uh, the, the great ice sheets in, in the northern hemisphere that's the, the northern hemisphere the North American one and the European one uh, well, initially, I thought the, that the, the fresh water went out through the Gulf of St. Lawrence into the North Atlantic at sort of middle, at middle high latitudes there, you know, through there, through Nova Scotia, British Columbia, not British, uh, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. Um, but uh, the evidence, the, the really good evidence by some of my colleagues, like Lloyd Kerguin, have shown that there was uh, Jim Teller, they they have shown that there was a, a very large uh, um, conduit of water of fresh water that flowed out into the Arctic through the Mackenzie through the Mackenzie uh, River system, and that uh, so you had that you had the you had a flow out from um, uh, through the uh, Gulf of St Lawrence and also the Europeans have also um, identified a major flood from um, the, um, the Baltic ice, ice lake. Uh, before, the, before, the Younger Dryas, before the onset of the Younger Dryas catastrophe, the, there was a Baltic ice lake equivalent to, that was equivalent to Lake, lake Agassiz in North America. Uh, the, this Baltic ice lake was dammed, was dammed up by the ice sheet, by the, the, the Fenoscandian, the Scandinavian ice sheet. So you get all this water that accumulated as the Baltic ice lake. Well, at the onset of the Younger Dryas, that, that, that dam burst for the first time in the deep glacial. That was, that, that, that burst and that Baltic ice lake water flowed out into the uh, Northeast Atlantic as well. And so the, and, and so the, 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 the age dating of all of these are all 
precisely at the onset of the younger Dryas at 12.8. So that means what the what that means is that all this fresh water that had accumulated in these vast lakes on land because of the melting ice sheets suddenly went into the North Atlantic. And this led to this low salinity, uh, this low salinity uh, surface water over wide areas of the Arctic and in the high latitudes of the North Atlantic. Now, why is that critical? It, what that did is it, it uh, throttled the production of the otherwise deep water that was being formed there up until that point. And so this is called the oceanic conveyor belt. And so this oceanic conveyor belt was suddenly throttled by, um, by, this, uh, by, by this freshwater surface. It could no longer, the freshwater is light, so it could no longer, the surface waters could no longer produce this, this dense water that sank down into the deep ocean. So you get- and, and, Sorry, how much volume of water are we talking about? I mean, we're in, in, these are cubic kilometers of, of discharge. That's a good, a good question. Now, there's evidence for that. Uh, now, where is the evidence? The evidence is in uh, some of the site, sites that have coral reef stratigraphy, coral reefs, like in Tahiti, uh, in places uh, of Madagascar. There's, a, there's about three places where high-resolution uh, paleo-sea-level uh, paleo uh, analyses have been made. Uh, and so let's talk about those. Um, they, um, as the ice sheets, of course, melt, sea level rises. And um, so they, they are able to, do, by looking at these coral reefs and determining uh, there are certain corals that, li that live at, at certain very specific water depths. And as those corals change, they can analyze the composition of those corals and determine what, if, what the sea level rise has been, yes, it was. And so to make it simple there, and uh, so what they find in these locations is a, a very short, a uh, very short sharp rise in sea level that occurs at 12.8 at the onset of the Younger Dryas. And the, the estimates based on their curves is about three to four meters of sea level rise. So that, that's all done independently, but, they, uh, um, but all this has been published independently by three, by three groups. And it looks like they're based on that work that the, the amount of water that was going into the oceans from the mill of the uh, um, the the, the uh, draining of these big lakes, and also some melting of the surrounding ice ice sheet because of the impact, raised sea level about three to four meters in about one hundred years. About that's uh, all that so you can you imagine a three to four meter sea level rise in 100, 100 years? That's pretty that's pretty dramatic. That's pretty <laughs> And do we have a, a calculation of the volume of water that that represents? I, I can't give you that. I, okay. is, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen something somewhere like you know two two thousand cubic kilometers of, of discharge. It's comparable. It's comparable with the, the the amount of volume that one could estimate from these lakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 significant, obviously. Um, and so then, how, how long do you think the the recovery took? Um, in North America after this uh, impact event? I mean, we obviously see these widespread floods, uh, wildfires, uh, you know, dramatically different climatic conditions. Um, yeah. what, what was the recovery time like? That's a good question. That's a good question. The, um, there's, there's, uh, there's one very good study that's been done on the paleo vegetation. Um, 
in different parts of North America. And what happened at the onset of the Young Dryas was the, um, uh, the, the, the regular, much of the regular forests were uh, spruce forests before the Young Dryas, a uh, spruce. Uh, uh, but uh, right at the onset of the Young Dryas, these disaster species uh, became dominant. This is based on pollen analysis, studying pollen uh, records in these sites. Uh, they, for about um, about 300 years, three or 400 years at the most, I think, uh, from my memory, um, the, uh, the vegetation suddenly shift uh, at the beginning at the onset of the Younger Dryas to a, a, a plant assemblages that were dominated by populus or poplar populus mm -hmm. and also things like thistle uh mm -hmm. plants like thistle. these are popular popular was one of these plants that you know that is sort of it's a um opportunistic it's an opportunistic plant uh, and that dominated the uh the, the far the vegetation at the onset of the younger dry over broad areas of north america so in that case it was in the order of, of a few hundred years the early part of the younger dryas the early part of the younger dryas was was the most severe, you're talking, you know, probably a couple, two or three hundred years. And um, the, uh, so um, that, uh, that, that's, that gives you one example. The, the, um, uh, of course, most of the animals had, had, had disappeared. And um, so uh, <laughs> they, I mean, they were, there was some migration of, of animal, or some species of animal, or some genera of animals into into um, North America that uh, that uh, were uh, probably excluded. Sorry about the phone. Uh, were excluded uh, because of the competition from the existing. They're persistent. Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. So on that subject of, of uh, the, the animal extinction and so forth, um, you, you had mentioned that the, the horse is a, is a bit of a, an, again, another anomaly within this period because uh, I guess in North America, since the Eocene era, which you know is 55 million years ago, the horse was a fairly predominant species right. and uh, essentially disappeared from the North American continent until its reintroduction by uh, the Spanish some 500 years ago. Yes, that's that's correct. Um, you know, I did to, to to introduce that topic. It was Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin um, was was really the first to raise questions about about the um, about the the phenomena of the megafauna in North America when he uh, when he was in Patagonia, Argentina, on the Beagle. He he was the first to find ground great ground sloths. In South America, and um, um, so when he wrote up the Voyage of the Beagle, it's actually very interesting because he um, he excavated ground sloth, but he also found the first first horse, uh, the first horse uh, uh, skeleton or actually a teeth uh, in during these excavations, and he was he, he was speculating about as a result of this he suggested that the, the horses that the horses did exist in South America which they did 
uh, and had disappeared and they longer and they they were just totally gone and the same with the, these sloths these, so he identified the extinction of these these megafauna in his, his excavations during the voyage of the beagle and he put it down to he suggested three hypotheses this is all written up in the voyage of the book this book the voyage of the beagle that that the the extinction of the megafauna in South America was either due to um, uh, uh, climate change, human uh, human causes, or some catast unknown catastrophe. Two two of the three correct there, perhaps. Well, but he suggested the three that are that, which have been debated, the three that have sub subsequently been debated as to what caused the megafauna loss in South America, and. And uh, uh, I'm not sure if I've already mentioned, there were 50 genera, 50 genera of megafauna that disappeared in South yes. America, and 38 genera of megafauna that, uh, that, be, that became extinct in North America. And of course, there's a lot more species because some of those genera have multiple species. I don't know how many species, but it's, it's bigger, than, bigger than those numbers. And of course, the, the, just the total population numbers are just enormous. And, and, and in terms of the mechanisms that caused the extinction of South America, which is, is uh, the evidence suggests that it's at or close to, again, the onset of the Younger Dry. Some of our, our work in, Chile, in southern Chile uh, supports that. Um, was that it was, um, uh, it's hard to argue <laughs> that, that, that it's caused by climate when large areas of South America warmed uh, as a result of the onset of the Younger Dryas, as the uh, as the northern hemisphere same interval cooled, so you're getting again the climatic seesaw. It, uh, it just makes no sense to argue that climate had any role at all in causing the extinction of of these South American animals, which occurred in these climatic regimes. So, unless yeah. unless that warming led to drought. Well, it, 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 there's no evidence. There's no significant evidence that there, that there was was a um, any major drought. Okay. Uh, that, but anyway, as we well know, uh, the, the changes in climate, are, 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 including drought, are, are, tend to be more regional, and, uh, and it's hard to argue that broad-scale extinctions, like all over South America, could be caused by such a phenomenon. Interesting. So what are our uh, future risks based on the periodicity of these past cataclysmic events, Dr. Kennedy? Are, are, we, uh, are we free and clear uh, or, or is this a uh, prescient danger? Well, that's a good question. Um, the, uh, when you look at the, the kind of impact, oh, by the way, the, 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 the Tunguska, Tunguska in 1908, the Tunguska impact, in Siberia, uh, was it gives us it gives, it gives some idea of about this. That at least shows that the, that impacts of that magnitude are pretty small. Um, can occur historically during human times, 1908. Um, the uh, that by the way that if Tunguska had of if Tunguska if the trajectory of the Tunguska impact, and it's probably, it looks like it was an aerial, only an aerial impact, it didn't actually hit the ground. That's what the data suggests, at least for this time. If there'd been a slight angle difference and a slight change, a very slight change in the timing 
because of the rotation of the Earth, uh, that uh, it could have it could have hit London. If it just with slight changes, that could have hit the, the city of London in 1908, and it would have totally wiped out the uh, the city of London. That one that one asteroid would have wiped out the whole city. So that and, shows. And how large the, how large was that uh, that um, uh, that that body? Oh, just a few, few meters. It's oh, is that uh, that small? It's not very large. Uh, and and then how how long how large was the sort of the blast field where it knocked the trees down and? Oh, God, uh, quite quite extensive. Right. <laughs> quite extensive. The uh, yeah the tundra, uh, the uh, tiger, the tiger forests, relatively high latitude. Large areas were devastated and, and devastated, burnt, 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 and knocked down. Yeah. So that that again the the analogy there if it had struck London we would have seen I guess a, a, a similar to a, an airburst uh, nuclear weapon where the that that shock wave literally just flattens everything within its uh, within that that core space exactly yeah and yeah. and so again you know do, do, based on Tunguska which has happened uh, you know with within a, a reasonable you know within the last century let's say um, are are we likely to potentially see some more of these. Well, that's argued. That's argued by others, and not me. Most of it's modelling, but basically, the, the the numbers that the numbers that are debated are something like um, one every two hundred years, or one every two. The numbers that are argued between are about one once every two hundred years to once every thousand years. But there, there's certainly it, it's uh, more of a reality than uh, than a, an, imp an improbability that uh, the Earth will see more of these uh, impact events. Yes, I, I, that's that's what I think. Uh, that's, that's debated also. Um, the, the old idea of you know that the the, the was based on very rare major crater forming events. Um, as far as we're concerned, is outdated. Um, you have to look at the the, the smaller um, aerial explosions like Tunguska and the, the risks that they pose. Uh, that's more much more realistic. Um, those are, are more like more likely to be uh, more common and um, and certainly a threat. Uh, the uh, yeah, um, it's uh, but the YDB. I mean, the the, the YDB uh, event was was a very significant event. As I mentioned, it's it's it was a it, it had vast consequences, and and those are very very rare. So we're not talking about the, the, the statistical probabilities of event, events like that. Uh, those are so rare. And, and our data suggest, I mean, the consequences of the YDB are so, it was so, um, so large. Uh, you don't see, you, you don't see that so much in the historic, in the paleontological historic record, you know, for over millions of years. So, I suspect the risk on those kinds of events is very low. Right. And, I mean, and, and that type of event, should it occur with our uh, modern civilization, I mean, that would mark the end of this civilization, I would imagine. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Be, absolutely. We, we'd, be, we'd be back with the Clovis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Dr. Kennett, if, if you could go back in time and speak with yourself as a young man at 18 or 20 years old, uh, what advice would you have for that young fellow? <laughs> um, 
I don't know, but keep, <laughs> keep, keep curiosity. Uh, science is driven by curiosity. And I, you've got to be curious. You've got to be open-minded. You also have to be willing to change your mind if, uh, where you're wrong. Um, you have to keep that in mind. Uh, it's, it's hard. Uh, we've seen in the YDB debate, we've seen a lot of that. The established concepts, uh, scientists have a lot of difficulty in uh, resolving that when something like this comes along, in spite of the fact that the, the data is, is, is not consistent. So yeah, I hope, hope in mind and be, I think, I think the YDB, the YDB um, discovery is, um, it, it was driven totally by curiosity uh, and increasing curiosity. Let's, let's try to look at this, let's try to look at that. What, what about this, what about that? Bringing in experts that who could, um, who could help with that, with a, resolve those questions. Um, and uh, well, it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting. So, you know, I, I, wouldn't, sh I wouldn't change anything for myself. Um, I, some, a, lot of, a lot of scientists, um, they don't want to risk. They, want, they, they think that if you're wrong, you, you, you risk your reputation. Well, uh, yes, that can occur, but it, it shouldn't be the dominant one. There should be a, a most, most, many, many scientific hypotheses are in fact ultimately shown to be wrong. They are uh, helpful in the in the uh, they're very helpful in the in the uh, in the effort of science to ask questions if they're wrong to suggest hypotheses may be wrong because that that stimulates uh, other endeavors as the YDP has done. We've we've learned we've learned a lot about how the Earth operates by just looking at the YDP theory. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that of course pr promotes the evolution of ideas and hypotheses and and forwards uh, our our understanding. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, any 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 personal fears moving forward? Personal fears. Yeah, of what's going on in the world. What, what, any anything that you'd like to see change, or if you had the power to change some things on on the planet, uh, what would you change? Well, I think based on what's happening in this coronavirus, the the the, the it's been disappointing to to see that the a large segment of the, of the population um, uh, have ignored, ignored science and objective thinking. That's been a shock, and I think scientists feel that. Um, it'll recover. Science, science is not a science. Is science? It's, 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 you know, evidence. Evidence counts. Good evidence. Quality science counts. The history of science shows that, and and our advances. Are, rely on that and so uh yes so um yeah it's, it's it's i think it's been a bit of a downer with the within this i think in the science community to see that uh, large sectors of the community uh, basically uh, don't follow science don't don't follow science in their, in their thinking and that if so if you if you had a wish i'd say yes uh, the education, of, the education of science in, in, in the population, I think, is crucial so that people can be critical thinkers. More people, more, more of the population can be critical, critical thinkers, to weigh evidence, to learn to weigh evidence uh, either way. And 
<laughs> the coronavirus. <laughs> this this is a topical. This is obviously very topical and, and and high in our minds right now, of course. But when 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 all the when all the scientific evidence is indicating that we actually have a uh, a, a major problem with a uh, with a virus globally, and people in, in large large elements of the population um, uh, prefer to ignore that. That's a problem. <laughs> well, other than the fact that we're utilizing a diagnostic test, which shouldn't be used for the purpose it's being used for, um, you know, even according to the inventor of the of of the test, I think that's uh, that's a problem to begin with. And uh, of course, with the survivability of over 99%, I think uh, our, our response perhaps has been uh, 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 an inaccurate one. I mean, the, obviously there's people within our society that are at risk and should be protected, but uh, the, sh the entire shutdown of the global economy and, and global tourism, I think is perhaps an overstepping of, uh, if this was an Ebola or a bubonic plague, then nobody should be outside in their, you know, no, outside of their houses, other than for absolute critical endeavors. But uh, you know, the I don't, I don't think we're quite at that level with this virus. No, no, not at all. But so, so compromises, compromises can work if that you need in order to make those compromises and those those, uh, those uh, approaches. You you need to work with the facts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think what you said there, the, the ability to be a critical thinker and, and weigh the evidence and, and not just listen to a talking head on television, uh, you know, to, to be able to have that scientific background to distill through some of the, the data and the information and come up with a, a reasonable uh, decision on your own. So you asked that question, you know, what's high in my mind, and that's it right now. Yeah. Yeah, as, as, as are most people, Dr. Kennan, I'm sure. So uh, where can listeners learn more about you and your work? Where, where should I direct them? Uh, oh, uh, well, there, there are, um, there's, um, uh, what is it? Uh, the, um, there's lots of, there's lots of pub publications that, that, um, are, uh, that are, what's, the, what's the name of the, of the server um, where all these publications are listed? Um, uh, you can go, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it. Sure. Uh, I mean, I guess the, the, the Comet Research Group would be a good, uh, good spot. The, research group, information. the Comet Research Group, uh, that, that would direct uh, lists, a list of, of publications, books, uh, reviews. Um, there's, a P, there's a PBS, public television uh, a video on this. It's older, but it's, it's still, it's still uh, essentially... Uh, uh, presents the the generalities of the YDB theory. Um, yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of material around on it by a lot of individuals. I think we've counted up to 150, 150 uh, you know uh, serious contributions. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, sir, it's it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you for your time and and your uh, your knowledge today. It's been it's been great. It's uh, uh, it's a fascinating subject for myself, and I know a lot of other people are very uh, very interested in in this. I'm pleased to pleased to do it. I hope I hope that we weren't able to cover a lot of material. There's, there's so much in this, but uh, but I think it's. It's, it gives a flavor anyway. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, perhaps uh, we'll, we'll get some feedback from the listeners and maybe there's, uh, um, uh, we'll delve deeper into some of the, uh, the details uh, in response to some of the listeners' requests uh, on a future episode. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Michael.
Excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kenner, for your time today. It was a pleasure to, to chat with you and to meet you, and uh, you enjoy your day, and we'll be in touch. It'll be wonderfully. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Same to you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.